Hello, thanks for checking out Covenant's podcast. Our prayer is that God uses this message to impact your life. Hi, good morning. My name is Pete Magazoo. Uh, geez, good morning. It's Memorial Day weekend. Thank, thanks to the left side. <laughs> My name is Pete Magazoo. I'm the creative arts director here and uh, just honored to be up here again uh, in a different capacity and excited to be closing our sermon series, uh, Uncommon, as you see on the screens behind me. And I was excited when Pastor Rob asked Jonathan and I to tag team preach, although I think we had some different understandings of tag team. I was anticipating more of uh, some arm drops off of the top of the truss, and uh, Joe was going to get me some chairs to do some, but I don't know if he got those. That got vetoed, so we're just going to read the Bible instead today. that cool with you? Good. Good answer. All right, so uncommon worship. Um, before we jump in, I do want to just do a little bit of defining because uh, we're going to go back and forth a little bit on uh, different topics this morning on what worship is, how we incorporate it into our lives, what it looks like both in the church and outside of the church in our lives as well. We're going to talk about what happens in your heart, what happens in your mind, the physical expression of worship, and what keeps us from worshiping as well. And uh, as I prepared for this, I, I wanted to make sure that we define and know what we're talking talking about before we just jump in and start throwing terminology out there and, and really diving into what worship is. Um, because we've done maybe a not so great job, the Christian church, in, in doing that. We've clouded what worship means. I've done that when we stand uh, on stage and we say, good morning, please stand and join us for worship. Right? What happens is we get, begin to associate music with worship, and, and that becomes the only thing. Like, well, worship music, it's called, it's literally called worship music, come on. Like, we're even labeling it that. Um, but we begin to have in our mind this idea that the only thing that worship is, is the songs that we sing on a Sunday, or the special Spotify playlist we have when uh, we really want to feel close to God. And we create all these, uh, these things around that musical worship. And music is worship, especially when we participate in a corporate setting like we are right here today, absolutely is worship. But worship goes way beyond that. Um, worship is a lifestyle of obedience to God's word at its core. It's, it's knowing what God has said in his word, knowing what he's about, knowing his character, and living that way both in the church, outside of the church, at your family, at your workplace, kids in your schools, um, when you're alone with nobody watching, having integrity in your obedience to the word of God and who he is. That's what worship is. Um, but today we're gonna, we are going to talk about that, but we're also going to talk a little bit about what that looks like in this corporate setting that we come to every week where we all gather, even on a holiday weekend, and come in and, and sit in our seats and sing songs together and listen to the preaching of the word and pray and then hang out in the cafe in the, the lobby before we go home back to our lives. Um, we're going to look at all of that. So as, as I thought about uncommon worship, I wanted to flip it and to help myself define before we really jumped in, uh, what is the common worshiper in America? What does a common American Christian worshiper look like? Well, I would say that the common worshiper is someone who sometimes sings, sometimes participates, sometimes shows up to church, sometimes is here, doesn't really know, like, what, like, what, what is this? Like, is this person waving at me? Or, like, why, why do we raise our hands sometimes during church? Uh, maybe picks and chooses when to participate. I would say that is more common than not in the Christian church. 
The uncommon worshiper, I would argue, and that we're going to look at is someone who is biblically educated and informed on, on what the Bible says we should be doing. What the Bible says should be going on in our minds, in our hearts, in our spirit, with our physical posture, while we are singing, while we are being preached to, while we are living our lives in and outside of the church. That is the uncommon worshiper. And I hope, I pray that one day that switches, that the common worshiper is someone who knows and loves to worship God in every scenario and, and is unhindered in that and puts Christ first. Uh, I'll, I'll reference this later at the end, but worship for me uh, has always been sort of, I've said this from the stage before, like this spotlight mentality. Like if you have a big searchlight, um, what are you pointing that to? Whether it be during a song or at home or during work, what is that spotlight shining onto? Is it shining on Christ or is it shining on something else? Um, And we'll come back to that at the end. But for now, I'm going to hand it over to Jonathan. He's going to take us through a little bit of John 4 and read some scripture for us. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jonathan Fitt, if you don't know me, and um, it's a pleasure, it's an honor and a privilege, I, I would say, to, uh, to be up here um, with all of our amazing musicians and singers and to be leading you all in worship um, every week. And I just wanted to say thank you, because I really do count that as a, as a privilege and as an honor. And it's an honor to get to serve in a different capacity this morning. Um, so I do want to dive right into our scripture this morning. We're going to be um, going out of John 4. And many of you will know it's the story of Jesus having a conversation with the woman at the well. So you can follow along in your screens, or uh, since we've been able to rearrange our chairs, we now have Bibles for you, um, which is exciting. Just one more thing that's getting back to normal. (laughs) Amen. Is that exciting to anybody? Two people are excited. All right. All right, so let's go into John 4. You can follow along. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I will never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. 
So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For our salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Amen. Now, there's so much that we could glean from this passage. This could be a whole sermon series in and of itself. And, of course, we want to, you know, sort of fast forward to the part where we're talking about worship, the, the woman's question to Jesus. But it's, it's helpful for us to have a little bit of context in this case, right? So uh, the, the woman, we don't know much about her other than the fact that she is a Samaritan woman. And it's interesting, the Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along at all. There is a deep distrust between them, deep dislike between them. And we have to understand a little bit of Israel's history to understand why that exists, right? So um, our, our, our Israel history gets a little fuzzy. Like we know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? We know Joseph and slavery, and here comes Moses and Joshua into the promised land. And then there's some judges, and eventually there's kings like David and Solomon. And then it gets a little hazy after that, right? <laughs> What happens next? Well, what happens next is the kingdom gets divided into two different kingdoms. There is a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And, you know, the, the typical stuff, right? Politics and greed and fear and envy and all these things uh, that cause kingdoms to divide. And the kingdom gets divided. And Jerusalem, see the temple where everyone worshipped, is in the southern kingdom. So in the northern kingdom, they have to devise their own system of worship. So when the woman's asking Jesus, well, do we worship on this mountain or that mountain? This is where our ancestors have worshipped. That's what she's referencing. Okay? So there's two different systems of worship now going on in the land. And, you know, one of the things, there's, there's all this animosity between these, these two people groups. Um, and the compound things, what happens next is both the northern and the southern kingdoms get conquered. Right, so the Assyrians come in and conquer the northern kingdom, and the Babylonians come in and conquer the southern kingdom. Now, what happens when your kingdom gets conquered is usually you are deported, and you go and live in exile, and you're assimilated into that culture that conquered yours. Right? And so uh, that's what happens for the most part in the northern kingdom, except some of the Jews stayed behind. So they gave this different system of worship. Then the Assyrians come in and conquer them. Then some of the Jews stay behind, and they intermarry with the Assyrians. And this is where we get this group of people called the Samaritans. Okay? So when you hear Samaritan, when we're reading you know, through scriptures, you see, hear the good, good Samaritan story, for example. You know who this people group is. Right? And the Samaritans, in the Jewish eyes, had forsaken and compromised everything that was important. The southern kingdom, when they come out of exile from Babylon and they're rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem like we read about in Nehemiah and Ezra and those books, right? So they, they feel like the, the, the northern kingdom, these, these uh, Samaritans, have compromised everything that was important to them. So Jews want nothing to do with Samaritans. So Jesus is on this journey. He's walking for a week in the desert, right? And most Jews wouldn't have even walked through Samaria 
they would have chosen a longer route to avoid going through there. So we have to understand this conversation with the woman at the well, how unlikely this conversation actually is. Right? A Jew would not have gone through Samaria. If he would, he would not have stopped at this well. He certainly wouldn't be talking to a woman in public. They didn't do that. Jewish rabbis didn't talk to their own wives in public. And they certainly wouldn't be accepting a drink of water from a Samaritan. So this is a very unlikely conversation. Jesus is shattering cultural norms. We have to understand what's going on here. This is why the woman's so surprised when Jesus rolls up and says, hey, can I have a drink? She's like, you're a Jew? I'm a Samaritan? You're a man? I'm a woman? You don't have a rope or a bucket? What, what is going on? And I, I love what Jesus does in this, and we don't have time to go into all of it, but I feel like definitely Jesus is our model here in this story, where he's lovingly talking to this woman. He's shattering these cultural norms. He's, he's drawing her in to this conversation, piquing her interest about spiritual things. He even ministers a, a supernatural word of knowledge to her about her past, Right? And she, later in the story, she runs into the village and says, come see the man that told me everything I ever did. So there might even be more things that he told her. Amen? And he's guided by the Holy Spirit as he does this. And this is a good model for us. But we, of course, want to get to this question about worship. So the, the woman says to Jesus, are we supposed to worship on this mountain or on that mountain? It was assumed that worship would happen on a mountain. Right? That wasn't a question in her mind. And we, we, we see throughout the Bible that mountains are very important. The people of that day and age felt like mountains is where God lived. Or at least we were a lot closer to where God lived if we were on top of a mountain. So we see this. We see Moses is meeting with God on Mount Sinai. We see you know, the temple in Jerusalem built on Mount Zion. These mountains are very important. A lot of the most important moments in Jesus' ministry, like the Sermon on the Mount, and the Mount Transfiguration, right? These moments happen on mountaintops. And um, I wonder how much we can relate to this because we don't worry about mountaintops, right? How was the last time you thought, what worship him, what mountain am I supposed to worship on? Right? We don't think like that. So, so how can we relate to this woman's question? Because we don't, we don't argue about mountains. But there are some things we argue about. We might argue over hymns versus hill songs. We might argue over what instruments to use, what style of music, what genre. We might argue over dance, what kind of dance would be appropriate in worship. We might argue over what, what level of poetic or artistic license we might take with our lyrics. Right? Is the kiss uh, sloppy and wet or is it simply unforeseen? Few of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> or how about reckless love? Is that, is that okay to say that? Right? So these are the kinds of mountains that we choose and that we divide over and that we choose to stand on. And so the, you know, these are the kind of issues that we bring. So we don't talk about mountains, but we have our mountains. Amen? And before we get to how Jesus answered this, this woman's question, I want us to just pause and think about what is worship? What are we even talking about? What is it that we're doing here? See, one of the things that, that I've had the, the privilege to do uh, before I came on staff here in Covenant is, uh, you know, I was traveling for about seven or eight years. I was traveling pretty much full time and leading worship all over the country, um, just about all 50 states and a number of other countries as well. And one of the things that I've learned as I've traveled around and seen a lot of different things is every group has their liturgy. 
Every group has uh, their ideas about what the right way to worship is. Right? We have orthodoxy, which deals with our beliefs, but there's also this idea of orthopraxy, which deals with what is the right way to worship. Even groups that say, eh, we don't want liturgy, we're just going to be outside the box. Guess what? They make their own box eventually. And so, uh, you know, some of the things that I encountered, um, you know, for instance, I grew up in a Methodist church. That was what I attended with my parents when I was a kid. And so for us, worship involved a choir, it involved robes, it involved hymnals. There was that wooden board on the wall that, with the numbers that told you which hymns you were going to sing. Anybody grow up with one of those? And, you know, acolytes, little kids coming in, light the candles and everything. I was one of them. And, of course, the all-important pipe organ. So that was growing up. That was what, what the Methodists called the right way to worship was. I led worship in a church in Alabama. It was a charismatic Episcopalian church. There was a censer. There was incense. There was robes. There was all this formality. And then there was this loud, happy music, and the, the priest tore off his robes and his collar and danced around till he was soaked in sweat. In Oklahoma, I led worship in a church that was completely full of bikers and Vietnam vets. Almost everybody was wearing some kind of leather vest, and they all had these patches on them that told their story of how they encountered Jesus. Hard rock music. And a bunch of people that you, you, you might not want to meet in a dark alley, all weeping at the altar. I've been in churches on, on native reservations, where they sit around in circles and play these giant drums. And people in full regalia and headdresses are dancing. Ministries that worship with flags and banners, pageantry, storytelling. Sometimes having multiple wardrobe changes within one service. And then, of course, there's groups like the Quakers that sit in complete and total silence. See, every group has their who, what, when, where, why, and how of worship. But my question for us this morning is, what does the Bible have to say? What is, what is a biblical definition of worship? And as I've studied that over the years, uh, I, I've come up with a couple points I want to share with you this morning of what I think a good biblical definition of worship is about. Because here's the thing, it's bigger than all that stuff. It's bigger than our songs and our music. It's bigger than that hour on Sunday or that, those four hours on Sunday for some churches. Right? So I want to give you these four points just quickly. So the first point is this. Worship is a heart posture of submission. Worship is a heart posture of submission. Now, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is shakah. And in the New Testament, the, the Greek word is proskuneo, that mainly we see as translated as worship. And these words paint this picture for us. It's about pressing down. It's about getting under something. It's about recognizing the, the, the higher rank or the superior rank or authority of someone or something else. And as you recognize the higher rank, you submit to it. The way a soldier submits to a, you know, a commanding officer, for instance. It's obedience. It's saying, you've got the highest rank, I'm surrendering my will to yours. It's about what we value the most. See, of course there are outward manifestations, but ultimately worship is this heart posture about what we value most and what's kind of on that throne? What, what is the most important thing to us? Second point is, worship is a response to revelation. 
So we can't worship something that we don't know. First, we have to have a revelation. Something has to occur to us. We have to be shown something. One of the the, the pictures that I love in Scripture in terms of uh, the biblical definition of worship is Joseph. How many of you remember Joseph and the couple of dreams he had? Joseph had some interesting dreams, didn't he? And he shared them with his family. And sometimes that's not a good idea. (laughs) Sometimes you need to keep your dreams to yourself. (laughs) I think that's one of the lessons there, maybe. No, but what were the dreams he had? He, he, he saw, you know, he saw his, essentially, his family, his, all his brothers, his mother and his father in, included, bowing down and worshiping him. And of course, his brothers find this highly offensive. And they said, they said to him, do you indeed think you're going to reign over us? Are you going to have authority over us? Their little brother? They couldn't believe this. See, this is what worship is about. He was saying, you're going to recognize my authority over you. And guess what happens a few chapters later? When there's a famine in the land and Joseph has risen to power in Egypt, they come and they have to do that exact same thing, recognize his authority. And so that dream actually came true. But this is the picture of worship. It's recognizing uh, someone or something else's authority in your life. The third point is that worship is a continuous reality. Worship is not something that we turn on and turn off. You know, when we come in on a Sunday morning and we say, let's begin to worship, you know, you were worshiping before you walked in. (laughs) You're going to be worshiping after you go home, right? If worship is about the thing you value most, about uh, responding to a revelation of what's most important, what has the highest authority, the highest rank in your life, There's not a moment when you're not doing that. That's a sobering thought. We're always worshiping something. 24 hours a day, there's something in that place in our lives. And the last point is this. Worship is a transformative influence. Have you ever asked yourself, you know, why does God require worship? Why would he say, worship me and nobody else? (laughs) Why would he say that? You know, is, is... Does God have a big ego? Does he need us to make him feel important? Obviously not. Obviously God is not on his throne in heaven, biting his nails, hoping, hoping against hope that we're going to show up, you know, on a Sunday morning and sing songs to him, make him feel good. That's not what's happening here. (laughs) The point of worship, the reason why God requires our worship is because it transforms us. Whatever we behold, we become. Whatever we encounter repeatedly, we embody. When you worship something, you become more like that thing. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, as we contemplate his glory, we're transformed into his image. This is the point of worship. As we bring our our hearts into alignment with a revelation of who God is, of what he's done, that's more than just music and singing. That's more than just what happens in this place, what happens on that hour on Sunday mornings. It's bigger than whatever mountain we've chosen to stand on. It's bigger than our opinions and our preferences about music and about all these other kinds of things. It's about what we value the most. 
It's about the condition of our hearts. It's, it's being impacted by a revelation of God and responding in obedience. Now, of course, there are going to be outward realities. There's going to be outward manifestations. There's going to be physical postures that we take. But I want us to first get the idea that worship is, first and foremost, this heart posture uh, that we have to take as we worship. So I want to turn it back over to Pete and have him talk about some of the physical postures. So, and we're going to leave this, these slides up for now while we talk about this, because what Jonathan just said is absolutely vital and it's worth repeating that um, the physical postures that come when we worship God are biblical and great, but without that, they are nothing. Without that, you're just a Pharisee preach, praying on the corner for everybody to see, right? That's like me just coming in and saying, man, I really want everybody to know that I'm a Christian, so I'm going to make sure I put my hands up. I'm going to make sure I sing really loud. But in your heart, you're just thinking about yourself. and like, man, everybody sees me, and I'm pretty sure I'm hitting the notes, and I sound great. I'm going to jump up to the harmony on this part. You need this, this heart response and this heart posture before you jump to any physical response. And, and the Bible gives us physical ways, uh, you know, real-world ways that we are to respond and to worship. You know, the Bible says all throughout that people sing. When something happens in the Bible, we see, and, and they sang their song, and then it's like six chapters of a song. And like, how the heck am I supposed to sing this? Um, you see that. You see uh, the use of instruments. You see the clapping of hands. You see people dancing. You see... Um, all different ways that they just want to celebrate who God is. And in uh, 1 Timothy 2, we read this one verse that says, uh, I want people everywhere to lift holy hands. Right? In the Bible, it says that we are to lift our hands. Now, that's a scary thing for some people who are like, oh my gosh, he's saying it. Like, no, please, let's run for the door. Um, this is a biblical command that we're given, and it's an important one. For a couple reasons, and one that I find most interesting as I studied this is biological, that all through nature agrees with this, that, that even animals uh, will, will fall into this category. And, and that is, the easy test is when you go to someone's house and you, they have a cat that you don't know, and you try to pet its belly, what happens? It flays your hand. <laughs> you come up with string cheese for a hand because it's like, no, don't touch me. I don't trust you to touch that area as a cat because why? It's, it's, a, it's a rib cage, right? Animals want to be protective of that area because there are vital organs in that spot. So if they get hurt there, instinctually they know that, that they're going to take some serious harm or even die. In the same way, if you're climbing a ladder or if you're playing sports or ice skating or whatever, and you're like, oh no, I'm going to fall. You don't, you're not thinking in your head, I better flip over and break it with my neck. No, no. Your body will instinctually, without even thinking lead with your shoulder, or try to rotate around with your hips so you take that blow on a less important part of your body, protecting what? Your torso and your head, because they're vital organs, your heart, your lungs, your brain. It, it, those things are so important that your body will instinctually protect those. What's my point? What's the first thing that a human does subconsciously when we get defensive? We fold our arms. What does that do? It protects. In our minds, we're saying, I, I don't feel safe right now. And, and we don't even think about it. And we just say, I don't feel safe. I don't feel comfortable. I feel like I need to protect myself. And that is our instinctual, I'm going to protect my lungs and my heart from any kind of damage that's going to come. What does this do? It exposes. 
So now when we're, in the pre- when we're singing and we're worshiping and we're saying, hey, I know what 1 Timothy 2.18 says, so I, I want people everywhere to li- raise holy hands, and I, I'm, I'm affirming what this song says. I will boast in Christ alone. I'll agree with that. Just like we say, amen, let it be. I'll put my hand up in affirmation on that side of I will boast in Christ alone. I'll put my hands up and, and say, I'm sur- when we sing the song, I surrender. I'll do that. I'll, I'll absolutely do all that. What's happening is, yes, I'm affirming, and yes, I'm I'm, uh, lifting holy hands, as the Bible says, but I'm also now saying, I don't feel threatened. I don't feel like harm is going to come to me in the presence of God or in this body of believers here at church today. I trust what is happening here. I trust my God, and I am willing to expose my vulnerabilities in that presence. So there is something spiritual that's happening there. As Jonathan, then that, as Jonathan said, that is also conforming us more to God's image as we're saying yes to those lyrics, yes to that point, yes to that prayer, amen, let it be. But also physically, we're also changing how we think because we're saying, hey, I'm comfortable here. I'm not intimidated by what someone else might think here. I'm, I'm not thinking about the people around me unless you're like, yes, and you're, you know, catch the person in the seat next to you. That's a different story. But there is something going on in there. And in, in the same way, we also see in the Bible that uh, we're to kneel, right? You know, how many times have you seen somebody do this at church? Probably not too often, right? We see it all in the Bible, though, and we see it as a response to higher authority, a heart posture of what? Submission. This is a a very submissive state. And we'll even sing songs that say, like, your love brings me to my knees. And we'll be like, no, I'm locking my knees. I'm standing up. I'm not even thinking about it because because there's so many people here. And I don't want to be the only one that might do this because uh, they might think I'm weird or they might think I'm over-spiritual or they might think I'm thinking too much into the lyrics instead of just, just, you know, going with the flow. I would never apologize for, for if, if we're singing a song and I'm like, man, I just want to sing from my knees. I mean, if somebody says like, oh, what are you doing up there? I'm like, I'm worshiping God. What are you doing back there? <laughs> You're going to come criticize for that. No, this is just something the Bible says they were supposed to do. And, and again, mentally, it has this effect on us when we're saying, listen, I'm going to bow before. The Bible even says when, when people encountered angels, they were prostrate on the face down on the ground because they, they knew the presence of God was there and that they were unworthy to be there. What would it look like for a church if people would just come and say, hey, we're going we're gonna to pray on our knees today. Or we're going to sing this song from our knees today just to remind ourselves in unison as the body of Christ that it is not about us, that we are in submission to God. You know, I think about like medieval times when there's a castle and, and the king sits on his throne and, and uh, he's you know, surrounded by gold and, and birds and eating grapes and stuff like that. And then the peasant comes in and like the burlap sack and, and the straw hat and he's like, please, king, please, like we don't have any food, like please... Uh, you know, it's the same kind of status that, that we're, man, we don't even deserve to be in the presence of God. And I've said that from stage before. We have no right. It is only by God's mercy and his grace that we are able to utter his name, stand in his presence, sing his praises. So when we enter into his presence, when we worship, when we sing, these things should come naturally because we should know inherently that it is just his mercy and his grace that is allowing us to do so. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, after we go back to the scripture about maybe what holds us back from doing that. Maybe what goes on in our minds that keeps us from worshiping or, or you know, some of us will say, well, that's just not me. Or, well, you know, we go to this church, so this church doesn't do that. There's a lot of reasons we'll come up with, and I'll touch on those in, in a couple minutes. But I just want to remind you uh, that 
this heart posture must come first. I'll say it for the third time. The heart posture must come first. You could do this. You could be on your knees. You could do so many things. But if your heart is not fixated on Christ, it doesn't mean anything. And with that, I'm going to hand it back to Jonathan. So I want to come back and, and, and pick up where we left off with the scripture. And we want to get to Jesus' answer to the woman's question, right? Which mountain? <laughs> Which mountain's the right one? So she was asking a question about the where and the how. And Jesus' answer says it's really not about that. It's really about the who. He says God is a spirit. So if you want to worship God, you have to do it in spirit and in truth. In fact, that's the kind of worship that he's actively looking for. So we want to talk about spirit and truth because that's, that rolls off our lips pretty easily. <laughs> but what does that actually mean? And let's talk about truth first. I think that's the one that we tend to gravitate towards. <laughs> I think that's the one we feel a little more comfortable with. So the truth, what truth are we talking about? We're talking about, you know, worship being a response to revelation, a response to truth. Uh, what is the truth? The truth is who God is. The truth is what he's like, what he's done, what he's going to do. These are the kind of truths that we're talking about. And these truths come to us from multiple different sources, right? I mean, uh, you know, most basically we could just walk outside and we could look around and see God's glorious creation. That reveals truth to us about him. That's a general kind of revelation. Or we could look in our, our scriptures. It reveals truth to us of, of who God is, about what he's done. We sing songs that contain an awful lot of truth, Right? There's something special about us coming together as a corporate body to, to sing these songs and declare these truths, which, by the way, is one of the best ways to internalize these truths is to sing them, not just to say them, not just to read words, but to actually sing them. Why do you think we teach kids the alphabet with a song, right? Music is one of the ways that we learn best. It's one of the ways that we, uh, you know, make this connection uh, with these truths. But here's the thing, you know, the, the truth of who God is is not the only truth being preached to us, is it? There's a lot of different competing truths out there. And the world would like to tell us that if we will value money or value fame or value power or value any of these things, that we'll put that in the highest place, that'll bring us happiness. Right? Isn't that the truth that the world is offering us? So much of worship revolves around which truth you choose to focus on. What you decide is true. And we grapple this with this. I mean, we don't always know what to believe or who to believe. The church is far from immune to these, these issues. One of the things that's interesting is uh, Merriam-Webster, the, the dictionary people, every year they come out with uh, a word of the year. And back in, in 2006, the word of the year was truthiness. Some of you might know, um, he's a talk show host and comedian, Stephen Colbert. Coined this word, truthiness. And I think it's indicative of our culture and of the fact that truth seems to be up for grabs. There's my truth and your truth. <laughs> It takes truth out of this simple binary of yes, no, right, wrong, black, white, and it puts it on this messy spectrum. 
So truth is complicated. But when we're talking about worshiping with truth, we have to talk about what kind of truth that is. I would propose to you that there's three different kinds of truth. I think there's factual truth, right? There's meaning truth. And there's what I would call truth in action. So the Bible calls it knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. These are different kinds of truths. So when we just have the bare facts about something, we have factual truth. We just have knowledge, right? When we begin to interpret what those facts mean, now we have understanding. And when we know what to do in light of that meaning, that's wisdom. Wisdom is when truth takes action. So we have to know that when we're talking about worshiping God in truth, we can't stop with simple factual truth. We're not talking about our checklist, knowing these 10 things about God. We don't want to just know about God. We want to actually know him, right? The truth is not something that we can just say, well, now we've got our checklist. We dotted our I's and crossed our T's. We've arrived. If that's how we deal with truth, that can quickly become an idol. That can quickly become the thing that we're worshiping. We're certain of what we believe. And that's the most valuable thing to us. See, truth is something that we've got to discover and grow in continuously. Why? Because the truth is not a checklist. The truth is a person. And there's always more of God. The Bible says that knowledge by itself, just factual truth, that puffs us up. That leads to pride. We've got to let truth penetrate past our minds and engage our hearts. And this is where we get to the spirit side of things. And as I was looking at this passage, I was thinking, it was, is, it, is it our spirit? Is it God's spirit? And, you know, the scholars have different opinions on this matter. I think the answer is yes. <laughs> it is our spirit, and it's also God's spirit in us. It's by his spirit that we worship. You know, Paul says that. But the point of contact... The connection is between his spirit and our spirit. It's, 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 that it's our heart, the, our inner self, if you want to call it that. Worship has to come from that deep place within us. It can't just be based on factual knowledge, which, be, which requires a, a mechanistic response, a formula. It's not something that's purely external. It's got to penetrate to the deepest parts of us. And listen, that doesn't, that doesn't stop us from having our liturgy, having our patterns, having our forms and our things that we do in worship. That's all fine. But it, whatever it is that we do, we've got to be engaging our hearts. We've got to have our spirits, that deep place within us, being connected. And yes, that means worship is sometimes experiential. That means our emotions and our feelings are involved in that. See, there's a balance here. Some people would really rather just favor only truth. Almost, you know, getting annoyed when there's people's feelings enter into it. Or when there's emotionalism. Sometimes we almost think of those things as distractions. It's like, can we just get back to the truth? That's fine, but we also have to be careful that we don't fall into the trap the Pharisees fell into. 
where Jesus said, you're honoring me with your lips, but your hearts are somewhere else. We've got to have both. We also can't go the other direction and be spirit only. Spirit only people sometimes get annoyed at all the words. (laughs) Why does there have to be so many words? All this doctrinal stuff, all this theological stuff. Can't we just go for the goosebumps? I just want to feel good. I just want to feel something. That's fine too. But again, it's the same trap that we could fall into. We've got to pursue the balance of these two things. We've got to have an experience with the spirit of truth. I'll give you an example as I kind of wrap up this section here. But, you know, you can know a lot of things about a person, right? Think about a relationship, you know. I'll talk about my, my relationship with my wife, right? I can know a lot of facts about her. I can know how tall she is. I can know what color hair she has. I can know she's kind and compassionate. I can know where she went to elementary school and what her first pet's name was. I could answer all of her security questions when I'm trying to log into something, right? (laughs) I know all that stuff. That doesn't in and of itself create any connection, does it? You can have the whole checklist about a person, but it doesn't create any deep heart connection. There's something heart to heart that needs to transpire. Knowledge, truth needs to take on meaning and meaning needs to become wisdom that takes action and takes root in our hearts. We need to have those moments where we can sit and just look in each other's eyes. That's an experience. It's an experience that's made possible by everything that we know about each other. But if we pursue only experience, if all we ever did was just look into each other's eyes, that would be just weird, wouldn't it? (laughs) That doesn't foster a meaningful relationship either. So you see the balance. You see how we, we have to have spirit and we also have to have truth informing our worship. It's doctrinal, it's theological, it's filled with truth, but it's also emotional. It's mystical, it's experiential. I believe if we can let go of our ideas of which mountain is the right one to worship on, and we all have them, And we can learn to live in the balance of spirit and truth. I believe that we can become the kind of worshipers that God is seeking. Amen. So as we get ready to close this morning, uh, and we'll go back and sing a couple more songs together. I wanted to touch one more time, one more time, real quick, on what prevents us or what might stop us or why we might think that we don't have to participate when it comes to worship. And as I thought through that, I thought of a lot of different uh, lists. I kind of made this mental list of all these little reasons in my life that I've ever been like, I don't feel like participating today. Uh, I'm tired. I, woke, I didn't sleep well last night, so I'm just, I'm just going to find a seat in the back and, you know, tap my foot to the beat or something like that. Or I had a rough week at work, so I'm just going to... Next week, I'll, I'll go to church next Sunday. Or I'm going through this right now, and here's a good reason for me to not, to, to not worship. And as I thought through all these lists, they all kind of boil down to the same thing. Regardless of what the scenario is, big or small, it always came back to the scripture you see on the screen right now. And that's Isaiah 4710. It says this, you have trusted in your wickedness and you've said, nobody sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there is none beside me. Me. Whose name is I am? 
God's. God calls himself I am. He gives himself that name in the Old Testament. We see that when he's with Israel. He says, I am who I am. So that is a reference to God. And now the scripture says here, hey, what you're living, when you're trusting in your wickedness and your own ways, and when you're, you know, like I just said, creating all these reasons why you, you don't want to worship God, whether it be in church or, or at home or at work, whenever you come up with an excuse to not worship God, what we're really doing is calling ourselves I am. And we're saying, I'm God, and there's none besides me. My reasons are more important. My, my situation and my scenario take precedence and are more valuable than what God has said. And that's what I said earlier. When, when it comes down to it, for me, I know, you know, 1 Timothy 2.18, I want people everywhere to lift holy hands. If all else fails, I will fall back on, I want to fall back on that. Not over that to, well, what do I think I should do? Right? We have to fall back to that scripture. But here we see with the scripture alone that, that our t- the temptation of humanity is to label ourselves God and to say, whatever I want is good, uh, whether it be all truth or, or all spirit or, you know, I'll just make the rules. And, and if, if I want to take six months off of church, I'll take six months off of church and then I'll come back and it'll all be cool. We're not falling back on, on God's word. And I don't have the scripture, but the next two verses basically say, like, the destruction that will come to you for doing this. It's going to be terrible, and you'll have a a terrible time if this is how you live. Because we as humans want to worship something. It's natural for us to to want to elevate something else. You know, like I said at the beginning, that spotlight that we have. We always are shining that spotlight on something. That, that, that is always there. It's, an, it's, it's instinctual in our lives to worship something. And the fact of the matter is, and the problem, and I would be the first to admit from this stage, is that we really like the spotlight on ourselves. We love the spotlight. We love to turn that thing around and be like, look at me. Like, here's my Instagram. Here's all the cool trips I did during the pandemic. Here's, uh, you know, my Facebook page. Here's all the jobs I've had in my, the two degrees and uh, all these pictures of my perfect animals and uh, my accomplishments. Everybody look at how awesome I am. That's how we use social media. And we just love the attention and we love that spotlight shining on us. We love to call ourselves I am and say that there is none besides me. But the gospel calls us to deny ourselves. And that's Luke 9, 26, 27. If anybody would come after Jesus, they must take up their cross and deny themselves. Turn the spotlight around and he says, follow me. Because if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. And I think when we fully grasp the gospel and take in that that Ephesians 2, that we are dead in sin, we're we're absolutely dead, lifeless because of our sin, and that God in his mercy and his grace looked down on us and said, I'll switch places with that cadaver. I'll go down and switch places with that so that he could have life and, and relationship with me. When we comprehend that and embrace that and live with that as our first and foremost truth with our spotlight shining, it becomes natural for us to worship. Then those inhibitions, those things where we come into church, we're like, well, I don't really want people to think I'm like super spiritual, so I'm, I'll hum along or I'll sing, or uh, I don't want to raise my hands because we're, you know, this is a PCA church, or we don't do that here. This is not that kind of church. You can go to the church down the street if you want some of that. You know, we come up with all these reasons, and all we're doing is putting ourselves above God. 
All we're doing is elevating what we like and our preferences. That's why like church shopping is a thing in our culture. I'm going to find a church that, that does the music I like, that has a, a funny preacher, uh, that has a, a slide for the children's ministry. Maybe pool would be nice. Uh, not too far to drive. Uh, has comfy chairs. Has a nice temperature. Like I, I thought about this last service. You know, if everybody came to church one day and all the chairs were gone... Or our, or our air conditioner was broken in August and it was like really hot in here. What would we do? Honestly, I, I, and I, I would put myself in this, but I bet a lot of us would be like, we can't have church today. There's no chairs. Where will we sit? It's too hot in here. We need to figure out something else out. Most, most of us would probably be like, Ugh, a little too, I'll just come back next week. And, and the test that I, I do to myself all the time, I just ask a simple question. Or I pose this scenario in my mind. Whatever reason I have for not participating, for not going to church, for not being afraid to talk to a coworker, or you know, you're praying before your meal and they say, "Hey, what was, what was that?" And you're just like, "Nothing. It's just this thing I do from growing up. It was a kid, you know, a long time ago. You'll never see it again. Don't worry." And instead of doing something like that, I, I put myself in this scenario where I'm talking directly to God and and explaining the situation and explaining why. I chose not to worship him. And I'll say, well, God, I'm kind of tired Sunday morning. And, uh, you know, I just, I was up late. The Sixers had a good win last night. And, you know, I was super pumped about that. So I, I stayed up super late watching all the highlights. And then I didn't get a lot of sleep and I was tired. So I skipped church, but I'll be there next Sunday. Okay, God? <laughs> That's foolish. That's insane. But I'll, what I do is I put myself in that scenario and I have never, ever, been in that scenario when I've said, okay, that's a good reason. I've come up with a good reason to ignore worshiping God or to not go to church or to not do something. No matter what, if you're putting God first and the gospel first, I will always be wrong in that scenario with whatever reason I present. And then when we come to church as the body of Christ, we come with our failures, we come with our shortcomings. And in this last verse, Galatians 6, 14 says it all. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like I said before, we want to boast in ourselves. We want to show the world who we are and express who we are so we get attention. And here we have the, the, another biblical command. If you're going to brag about something, if you're going to shine your spotlight on something, shine it on the cross more than anything because you wouldn't even be here if it was not for the cross. And, and the awesome thing is, that doesn't mean you're perfect. That doesn't mean that you have your life figured out. It doesn't mean that you're not going through madness right now in your life. But when you come in church and we sing songs, and we, we're going to sing the same song we sang at the beginning of service for those, those of you that were here. I will boast in Christ alone. When you come in and you sing, I will boast in Christ alone, while you're going through mayhem and raging seas at home, and your friends and this church body and people who know you and know that you're going through that see you saying, I will still be vulnerable. I will still worship God. I'll still hold his scripture close to my heart and put him first and shine my spotlight on him. When they see you do that, that makes God look glorious and great. And he is absolutely worthy of that. So as we get ready to sing again, I want to challenge you. Whatever the next step is in your life, maybe you've, you've never sang at church before, you're a, a hummer or a toe tapper, um, I just want to encourage you to not have any kind of wall built up. It, maybe that means that today is the loudest covenant has ever sang before. Maybe it means, uh, you know, there's plenty of space between these rows. Maybe it means you just singing from your knees or, or lifting your hand. And, and I would just give this challenge to, especially to the men in here, I don't know what it is, it's just something about wanting to be a you know, big, strong alpha man. We don't like to be submissive, right? It's, it's just kind of natural. 
natural in us to not want to submit to anything. And this, to say openly to, the, to this congregation, hey, like, I'm submitting to someone else, it's kind of like hard to get past. But especially husbands, show your family, show your wife, show your kids that Christ comes first. Same, same for, for mothers and wives. Do that together. And, and young children in here, don't be afraid of your friends sitting next to you, your parents. Well, I don't know what my parents are going to think if I, if, if I sing. Like, they've never even heard me sing. Don't be afraid of that stuff because, again, that's just putting yourself in what you want above what the Bible says and what, above God. And he deserves everything we have. And, and I'll, I'll leave you with this um, as we pray. I, I can't take credit for it because it's my friend who's a, a pastor in New Jersey said, if you cannot do it here, you will never do it out there. If you can't get comfortable worshiping God surrounded by a bunch of other Christians in a church, how can you expect to go to school or to your place of work or back home to your family with maybe people who aren't believers and represent God well there if you're too afraid or too uncomfortable to do it here? So I want to give you that, that gentle nudge and free you to participate as we get ready to worship again. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you for your presence here among us. We thank you that you've given us uh, your word. We thank you, uh, most importantly, God, for the cross and um, for buying us, for for paying our price, Lord, for, for raising us up to be with you again. And now, as we sing, God, I pray for each person here that we would uh, not be inhibited by anything but that we would just freely worship you and, and, and put our attention and our spotlight on the cross. That we wouldn't seek uh, uh, any kind of notoriety or any kind of gain out of this, but as your word says, that we would just boast in you because you are a great and glorious God. Lord, we know that we don't deserve anything. We know that without you, we are absolutely nothing. So be with us as we worship you now. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.